We're back in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And again tonight we're going to read the first five verses as we have now a few times. And our focus will again fall in verse 1 and in verse 2. I do want to very quickly touch on what we mentioned last time we were in the book of Romans together. I won't spend a whole lot of time reviewing. If you didn't get to listen to that message, go back. As we have said, we'll continue to build uh, as we go. But uh, let's read Romans 2, 1 through 5. We'll pray and then we'll get into the text for the night. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest dost the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Tonight we are really going to focus on verse number two. And there are just a few words there that we really want to take apart. And it's the words according to truth. According to truth. The Apostle Paul is giving us the judgment of God according to truth. And we're going to come back and dissect that. Let's read on. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and dost the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? The question's asked. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against, that, against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So here in verse number two, we are pointed to the fact that a judgment is taking place. He qualifies the judgment according to truth. And then verse number five, we find that that judgment, that wrath that is being stored up, eventually will be let out. It will come against the man, against the woman, at the day of judgment. And then our last message together in Romans 1, we looked at the consequence of the fall of men. And what we're pointing to here, remember, we've said it a couple times now, and it's in that piece of paper that we gave you that outlined the entire study of Romans but until we get to chapter 3, about midway, this entire front end of Romans is full of condemnation. And it's not for us to become weary in that. It's not for us to look at it with disdain, but rather for us to look at the condemnation that's given as holy and just and righteous. And then for us to understand where we stand personally as it pertains to that judgment as it pertains to that condemnation. There's more that's written later on in Romans. Remember, this book is going to get really, really rich. It's going to get really, really good, even more so than what we've experienced because so much of sanctification and justification and the propitiation of our uh, blood-bought born-againness, if you will, our salvation, our relationship with God, a lot of the tone for what we know, for what we believe, the anchor of sound doctrine, you're going to find here in Romans. But before we get there, remember we have to dig down deep, 
the foundation of this building. It's going to be a tall building. It's going to be a beautiful building. It's going to be a glorious building. It's going to reach into the skies all the way to the very throne of God. But for us to understand exactly what this building is, for us to see the beauty of it, we've got to dig deep into what humanity is. It is an opportunity for us to understand who we are without God and what we were before Christ and then cling to the promises that God gives us as we go down the line in Romans. But we don't want to skip over anything. If there's more for us to squeeze out of this lemon, if there's one more little slice or sliver of pie, we want to get that slice or sliver out of that little container that it's in. We want that last bite because it could be the last bite will be the best bite. Amen. Who knows if a corner of that brownie pan can sometimes be the best. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, all the chocolate chunk went there, and now you need some milk. All right. So let's look at this together. I want to read this. We'll pray, and then we'll get into the new text for tonight. So the fall of men. If you've not made these as notes, make these now so you can go back and study for yourself. But we talked about a few things that the Bible teaches clearly. There is no room for argument here that men are born, every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl, every human being alive is born a few things. Morally corrupt is one. Enslaved to sin is two. Three is the natural enemy of God. So morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, the natural enemy of God, and we explain that in detail. I want to come back to that for just a moment. And number four, that we are unable to please God within our own capability. And what that means is that there's nothing inside of me, there's no good that I was born with that sufficed or that made the payment or that was part of my salvation. My salvation, the gift that was given full and free from God, is an act of God. In other words, I did not find Jesus. Jesus found me. He called me from death unto life. Remember this, dead men can do nothing. They're dead. They're a dead corpse. Dead corpses can't get up and do anything. They're, they're gone. They're, they're dead. But a supernatural working of God, where the dead men's brought to new life, that's a good way to look at your salvation, that there was nothing that you could do in your own self to save yourself, but that God, the Holy Ghost, he opened your eyes, he breathed life into you, and then you responded to the persuasion of the Holy Ghost of God. Praise the Lord for that fact. Now let's back up to this because folks hear natural enemy and it feels uncomfortable. It feels a bit militant towards people, especially when you put into context that what we're saying is those beautiful babies that are born in Mission Hospital every day or at Park Ridge Hospital every day, uh, that they're born as natural enemies. And that feels uncomfortable. But the Bible's clear, it's very, very clear that we're born hating the light. We're born hating truth. It's just part of who we are. It's the nakedness, if you will, of humanity. And really, there's so much we could say about this. There's a verse in the book of John that talks about men that hate the light. And that word that they use there, the word that the, uh, the author of the book put there, uh, the word in Greek is phos, that men hate the phos, the light. And then Jesus follows that up later, and he tells them in John 8, 12, he says, I am the phos. 
John is recorded in one verse that men are born hating the foes, hating the light because of what the light does. And then just about three or four chapters later, Jesus takes that word phos and he puts it around his neck on his shoulders and he says, well, I am the phos. I am the light. And it begins to expose our humanity that mankind left to itself, even in its own natural habitation, that it is prone to, that it is born in the nature of hating Christ himself, according to scripture. Now, it begins to show us why there is such steep condemnation, why, why humanity needs what it needs. And now here we are, the judgment that comes according to truth. I think the point tonight is for us to really look at a different side of God, an attribute of God. And I want to take this verse apart and I want to look at God. I want to look at the character of God tonight as our judge. God as the judge. We're going to look at that here in just a moment. Let's pray, ask the Lord to bless the reading of Scripture and that He would focus our hearts and minds right here for just a few minutes. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, God, we come back into your presence, and Lord, we ask you, Lord, to give us what we need tonight from your word. God, that you would hide us behind the cross. Lord, that there would be liberty to preach the word of God, to teach the word of God in this place tonight. Lord, that the word of God would reprove. God, that it would correct. God, that it would do what only it can do through and by the power of the Holy Ghost of God. And Lord, we put it in your hands tonight. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to have a better understanding of the God that loves us, the God that gave his perfect son on our behalf and our relationship to this holy and righteous judge. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. God as our judge. God has many different attributes. God is listed. We find that God is shown to be our father. There are many verses that make that very, very evident, that we can look to God as God our Father. That is his position even within the Godhead itself. He is our strong tower. God is our provider. He is our refuge. God is our strength. There are so many things that we could say about who God is and what he is, not just to his children, but to the world, the natural attributes of God. In other words, sometimes I think we put God into the box of God is who he is because of who we are. In other words, because God has children who have been purchased and now are a part of the family of God, that that element makes God who God is. That because God was able to show grace, because God was able to show mercy, that that makes God who he is. We cannot view God in that light. There is no reality where we, the people, his children being involved, mankind, the cosmos, is somehow attached to his existence or that somehow we increase the righteousness or that we increase the holiness or that we increase the goodness of this God. God could have left 
us as people, he could have left the earth itself to simply implode upon itself in sin. The moment that Adam and Eve fell, he could have walked away from the entire situation and he would have still been as holy as he is tonight. He could have left us exactly where we were, broken and damned in our natural state and still been a holy, good, just, and righteous God. But there is, thank God for us, an opportunity to be called the children of God. There has been a kinsman redeemer. Uh, Jesus coming to earth as all God and as all man is so important for us. The humanity of Jesus Christ is for you one of the greatest connections to who God is. But there is within scripture great evidence that there is an attribute of God, a characteristic of God, where God is found to be the judge. And tonight, for us to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying about these, these judgments, these decisions that are be, being handed down, as he put it, rightly and according to truth, then we need to understand who it is that's on the bench. We need to understand who it is that's in the robe who it is that has the gavel in his hand and who is handing out the sentence. Turn in your Bible tonight to Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9. Let's turn there together. There's a great parallel here in Psalm 9 that's going to help us understand better what the Apostle Paul is teaching in Romans chapter 2. Psalm 9. Psalm 9. Now, you may find it strange that, talking about a judge, that the first portion of these verses in Psalm 9 were in the midst of great praise. Notice now in verse number 1. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will show forth all thy marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in thee. And here it is again. I will sing praises to thy name, O thou most high. Uh, there's four I wills that kind of launch Psalm 9 out. And it's David's dedication. It's an exuberant prayer. It's a passionate moment of worship. But as he's passionately worshiping, uh, notice there the four I wills. If you can circle those in uh, verse 1 and verse 2, uh, David's making some strong declarations. He's standing on some firm ground and it's not a maybe, there's no guesswork here. He's saying, I will praise thee. I will show forth. I will be glad and I will sing. David's got some confidence and authority as he sings this song, as he worships the Lord and he's launching this entire song out in this beginning phase of worship. And let me just go ahead and say this now so that we can take it along the journey with us tonight. If you'll notice, especially as we go through this psalm, people who aren't guilty, people who do not have the weight of shame and condemnation, people who are free from even their own actions and their own sin and their own failures, people like that, who are free of the condemnation, free of the anxiety that sin brings, 
free of the pain and the hurt of the scars of bad choices, people like that can walk into a courtroom and walk into a situation, walk into a circumstance, and instead of them feeling the weight of their shame and their guilt and their sin, they can simply praise God for who he is. That's how David starts his dissertation on this judge. Let's continue reading. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou satest in the throne judging right. Now I'm going to give you one judge. We're going to demonstrate tonight the one judge, but three different judgments. One judge, but three different judgments or three different dealings on how this judge handles people, handles certain people. Number one is the judge's dealing with the godless. The judge's dealings with the godless. Read verse number five. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. And thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. This is the final demise of evil. This day is coming. The final judgment is coming for every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl under the sound of my voice. Judgment is coming. There's nothing anyone can do about that fact that a day of judgment is coming. But there's also a, an assurance from God's word that in that judgment, that will be the final few moments of evil's ability to operate at all. We're not just talking about evil's ability to operate on this earth, but we're talking about the existence of that evil will be contained and it will be judged and there will be punishment for those evil perpetrators and it will be a final judgment. Every hair that the enemy ever touched on your head, he'll have to answer for it. Every time he tormented you in your sleep and brought accusations and charges of which he had no foundation, Satan is going to pay for it. Every time he fooled and he damned a soul into eternal hell, Satan is going to pay. The mischievousness, the action of the demons and the devils that operate even against the church and Christians and people that love God, their actions will be met with judgment. And the Bible's clear that that will come to an end. The final demise of evil, rebuke, destroyed, put out and put down their name never to be mentioned in heaven. Think of that. Hell is unimaginable. Hell is terrible. It's horrendous. There are no words in any language that exists that can describe the horrors of hell. It's truly the worst place ever created. But even past the torment and even past the conditions and even past everything that takes place to the human body in that final place of judgment. Past all of that, past all of the conditions of hell, what's worse, 
What's more heavy, what's more terrible is the reality that those there will never be able to seek out God. They'll never feel the presence of God and they'll be forever, for all of eternity, cut off from his mercy and from his grace. That is the horrendous nature of hell. Remember that God rules in holiness. Everything that God does is pure and holy and good. God can do no wrong. And it's hard for us as human beings to put that into view. A perfect entity, a perfect being that never gets tired, that never gets hungry, that never sleeps, that never changes his attribute. He does not respond as humans respond with knee-jerk emotion. He is solid, he is stable, he is immovable, but he does everything that he does and it's perfect. There is no chink in the armor of God. There is no cracks in the disposition and the character of who our God is. God is holy, God is immovable, and he can do no wrong. That is the character of our God. And that same entity who is holy and right and just is also the judge that sits on the throne. He is the one that has on the robe of the judge. He is the one that has the gavel in his hand and he operates without any flaw. There's not one thing that God has ever done that can be looked at with any sort of connotation of wrongness. It's hard for us to imagine just how perfect and good and righteous God is. To never have anything in all of time and all of existence to be able to say that there was one mistake, one flaw. That's how powerful he is. Romans chapter 9, you don't have to turn there and we're going ahead just a little bit, but let me give you a glimpse into God dealing with the godless as that judge. So here you are, the judges dealing with the godless. Romans 9, 17, 17 through 22 for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose I have raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? The Bible's teaching the principle here that Pharaoh, who was raised up, 
who was manipulated, controlled by God, was done so for one purpose and one purpose only, for the glory of God. God, the judge, the holy, righteous one, was glorified in the destruction, the damnation, and the dishonor of the vessel. The instrument, the voice, the man, Pharaoh, who was raised up against the children of God in wrath, he died and was damned into eternity, and God still received glory according to his will and his purpose. Humanity says that seems unfair. Humanity says that seems like Pharaoh got a bad rap. God is holy, he is just, he is righteous, and he rules as that judge, as that king, as that sovereign, as that one who is in full control, and all of it takes place for his glory. Man has to come up against the fact that God sees everything clearly and we are mere mortals who look through the glass darkly. And Pharaoh raised up for destruction for the glory of God. Hit pause. Aren't you thankful that God called you out of death and gave you eternal life through and by Christ Jesus? All right, 17% of you. Is there anyone here tonight that can say, praise God, I know I'm going to heaven. Amen, Amen. 89% of you. Is there anybody else that can say, praise God, I'm going to heaven. Praise the Lord, we're at 100%. Be thankful for the call of God, the wooing, the drawing of the Holy Spirit when he opened your eyes and saved you from your sin. Eternal life is a really big deal. It's not to be looked at cheaply. It's not to be discarded as that one quick little moment. It was a devastating head-on collision with the Holy Ghost of God who arrested you and brought you into that place where you could then believe, praise the Lord. The judge will have mercy on whom it pleases him and the Bible teaches and harden whom he will harden for his glory. That's tough. That's hard to swallow. There are certain things in the Bible that we must look at and we must understand and we must believe God in faith and trust that he is a holy one who knows better than I. The good news is God is greater than all the evil. He's more powerful than all of that wickedness And that fact alone brings him glory. People drive themselves crazy, especially lost people. Lost people will drive themselves crazy asking the question, well, pastor, if your God is so loving, if Jesus really loves me, then why do bad things happen? If God's really in control, if God's really who he said he was, if you believe that your God is omnipotent and that he controls everything, then why in the world would there be some sort of natural disaster that would harm children? That's a tough question to answer. I had one gentleman I witnessed to for years look at me and he said this. He said, I believe that you're convinced that this is your God. And he said, if that really is who he is, if God is that powerful, 
If God is that holy, if he's that just as you say, and if he really is in that much control, then I want nothing to do with him. How dare he allow those things to happen? That was his response as an atheist, an agnostic at best. And there is a place and there is a point where humanity and its understanding has to crumble in faith believing that God is exactly who he said he was and that anything that happens, anything that takes place, remember we are living in a sin-sick, cursed, diabolically evil world. Yet God in power and in control allowed the evil to exist for one reason and one purpose. And it all comes back to his glory. Your flesh does not want to hear that. The humanity of every man and woman in this building doesn't want to accept that. That is exactly how we get to the place where we decrease, he increases, and we say, God, thank you for the grace and the mercy you've bestowed to me. I praise your holy name for looking my way. And I submit to you. That's why it so bothers me when this generation begins to codify the idea that Jesus is your bro. That God is your dude. That Jesus is reduced to some sort of cool thing that we put on a t-shirt. That God the Father is some sort of fuzzy, feel-good spirit that floats around in all of us. No. God is a holy, righteous, just, immovable being and we should fear him. That's who God is. And the sad part is some people will go their entire life so many opportunities, the truth will hit them, will penetrate their hearts and their minds. And because of their wickedness, because of their nature, they'll reject Christ. But one day they will see who God is. Number two, the judge is dealing with all men in general. The judge is dealing with all men in general. Verse seven and eight of Psalm nine. But the Lord shall endure forever. Take that in. The Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. God's not only preparing a place for you, but he has also made preparations for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. In other words, God will not have to sit upon the throne with gavel in hand and robe upon him and have some sort of weak, scared, I hate to have to do this. No, no. God will be upright in his judgment. He will be firmly planted upon the throne and he will do it for his glory. That's the picture of who God is from Psalm chapter 9. The judge is going nowhere. This isn't Judge Judy. He's going nowhere. There is no backroom deal to be made with God. Listen to me. I've said that now nine, ten times in the past two months in this building. And I think God's trying to help somebody. There are no backroom deals to be made with God. Well, he knows who I am and I know who he is. No, you will stand before God one day in all of eternity. will depend on your judgment decision. There is no gray area within the contract of eternal life. 
The judge is going nowhere. The judge will outlive you. And all men will be judged. God's judgment is absolutely unavoidable. It's inescapable. And one of the greatest lies that the enemy tells people, if I'll just refuse to acknowledge God, if I'll just refuse to believe anything that preacher says, if I'll just be a good person and not kill nobody and not do drugs and pay my taxes, it'll be okay. What a lie. All men will stand in judgment. Number three, and this is where we'll end tonight, the judge's gracious dealings with faithful disciples. This is the good part. This is how the judge responds to those whom he knows. Verse 9 and verse number 10 of Psalm 9. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. They will cast themselves then at the mercy of the court. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. And these people that walk into the courtroom, they stand before the bench and they have nothing but a smile on their face. These people don't dread the robes of righteousness. They don't dread the sound of the gavel. The authority and power of the judge doesn't bring them to grief. Rather, the authority and the power of the judge brings them comfort. They look at the judge and in his eyes, they don't see anger. When these people, the faithful disciples, the followers of the judge stand in front of him, when they gaze into his eyes and on his face, they do not see a face of disappointment. Rather, they see the face of their father, the one who loves them and cares for them, their kinsman redeemer. And that father, that judge, he looks down from the bench upon the throne of righteousness. And as he inspects those, as he judges them, when he looks at the docket, when he looks at the charges brought before them, the stenographer has to say, Judge, hold up. Right here. It, uh, the judgment's already been passed. The sentence has already been commuted and it's already been covered. Judge, there's no reason to pass sentence on this one. It, right here in the Lamb's book of life, I find this defendant's name. And the judge says, pardon, enter ye into the gates. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come on in. The judge's dealings with those whom he knows, his faithful disciples who know him. And there's going to be no better feeling, no better sensation, no more greater culmination of all that you've lived in this life when your faith become sight and you stand at the right seat of God, the throne of judgment. And there for that one moment, your judgment is stayed and God brings you to that place, that land called Beulah. And then for the things that you've done, 
the service that you've performed for the king. Not only do you get to go into heaven and not to the jail, to the penitentiary of eternity, but then you're rewarded for running your race well. God says that he's going to give us rewards, crowns, the gifts of heaven for our faithful service to the Most High God. And the blood of Jesus Christ is the reason that you're able to stand there and not stand at the judgment seat in grief, but rather you're able to stand there as a child of the judge. And he says, come on in. God's a great, great judge, a wonderful, wonderful father. And he does all things well. I think what the Apostle Paul would have us to embrace early on here in chapter 2, a lot of it I believe with all my heart has to do with how we treat each other. The further I go into this study, the more I read chapter 2, a lot of this comes down to how you view Christ, how you love Christ, and then how we treat each other. It's hard for me to pick up a stone. It's hard for me to put a word in my mouth about another brother or sister in Christ or even someone in the world when I keep in view what the judge did for me. This should absolutely make us fall in love with Jesus more and more each day and then be the good ambassadors, the representatives of Christ to each other. And then when the day comes, if the Lord tarries 100 years from now, most of us probably will not be here. And that judgment day that's coming, we'll be able to stand with not wobbly knees, and not sweaty palms, but rather hearts of expectation because we know who the judge is and he knows who we are. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a good father, my kinsman redeemer. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice you paid on the cross, for the perfect gift that you gave. Lord, I'm so thankful that my name has been recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm so thankful that when God looks at me, all he sees is blood. Thank you, Lord. God, I thank you that there is no condemnation tonight for those of us that are in Christ. Lord, that when the devil comes with accusations, Lord, when the past mistakes and sins and failures of our lives come haunting us in the night come aggressively towards us to rob us of joy and peace that we can simply rest in the perfect sacrifice that was paid on Calvary and that not only do I get to live in this world in this life with my sins paid for 
but because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, that I can live with a clean conscience, that I can sleep in peace tonight, knowing that my payment has been paid. Lord, we thank you for allowing us a glimpse into this psalm tonight to better understand the judgment, the righteousness, and the holiness of our God. And we yet again tonight submit to you. We ask you to help us to grow, to be the students of the Word of God that we ought to be, to be the Christians to one another that we should be, and that we would always, each and every day, be thankful for what you did for us at the moment of our salvation. We worship you. We magnify your name. Be with our church family tonight, those who are bereaved, those who are sick, those who are unable to be in the building but want to be in the building. Lord, would you minister to them tonight? Would you do something that only you can do for their hearts? Lord, for the ones that are worshiping with us online who cannot leave the nursing home, who cannot leave their home, God, for the ones who are immunocompromised that must stay close to the house, Lord, I pray that you bless them, encourage them, wrap your arms around them tonight. Lord, Brother Jerry Payne comes to heart tonight. God, I pray that you'd go to that little house, God, in that valley. And God, that you'd give him a big old hug tonight. Just love on him. Let him feel the love and the appreciation of this church tonight. Encourage my brother. Give him what he needs. We pray that you'd go down the road here. Pastor Jerry Young. You do all things well. You do all things well. And Lord, where we don't understand, we submit. We bow. And we worship you. You're a good God. I thank you tonight that I'm not in hell with my back broke. But I have salvation full and free. Lord, I pray that you'd help me love my brothers and sisters according to what you've done for me. You're a good God. And we love you for who you are and for what you are. Touch our church family. Protect us. Keep us all safe. And bring us back on the Lord's day to worship you in spirit and in truth. To Jesus' name, ask all these things. Amen and amen. I love you church family. Have a great week. Enjoy the blessings of God in your life. I hope and pray that as you're going through your week that there is an opportunity for you and the Lord to be alone with your Bible and alone in prayer. We're in a desperate place where if the children of God, the family of God, 
if it's only happening here on this campus, what your relationship with the Lord is. We're coming to that intersection of time where things are begun, have already begun to become much more difficult. There's a new fierceness upon the land. We need to be guardians of our home, guardians of our mind, and guardians of our hearts. You're not in this thing alone. You have each other, you have the Lord. Until he comes, he promised that he'd sustain us. Live with that joy, live with that hope, that peace and that confidence this week that you belong to the Lord. If you're here tonight and you're lost and you're undone, before you get in your car and chance eternity, come find one of these pastors. Come talk to a deacon. We'd love to take the word of God. And I'd love for you to have some peace tonight before you go to bed.